Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. This week, I was reflecting that as we are just a couple of weeks away from the first votes being cast in the primary, um, all of the movements that we've seen in the race so far feel like people reacting or possibly overreacting to calculations about what does it all mean from an electoral point of view? Um, you know, you've seen Kamala Harris when she attacked uh, Joe Biden seemed to do really well for a little while, but then she didn't seem to follow it up enough. People weren't convinced and sold on her. So her polls went back down again. Elizabeth Warren climbed steadily in a sort of grassroots momentum way until um, she broke kind of bigger into the scene. And she, for the first time, was parallel with Joe Biden. And then there seemed to be a sort of panic reaction that set in of people saying, well, she's for Medicare for all. Maybe she's, uh, maybe her plan is, is not great. Maybe people will be turned off. And so my reading of it is that she lost a lot of support. People weren't convinced that she was, was, was a, a candidate who could win. Um, Pete Buttigieg, you know, had a, again, had a, um, a moment of catching fire early in the race. He's done you know, pretty well for himself, um, had a real moment of where it looked like he was taking a clear lead in Iowa. Um, but then there was some pushback. Does he bring enough of the coalition uh, together? Do African-American voters dislike him? And again, there was a bit of a, a reaction against Pete. Um, Bernie Sanders, I think, you know, has, has suffered from the beginning from a sense that many kind of more, especially more moderate voters have, but even progressives who are more pragmatic progressives. Um, is he the sort of person that America will elect? Um, right now he's getting a little bit of growth in the polls, um, perhaps because, you know, he's been able to build on his name recognition. I'm curious whether, um, you know, it's it, whether, whether Biden, whether Sanders will see the same kind of rise and fall effect that the other candidates have had. Maybe he's peaking at the exact right time. I don't know. But it seems to me like if you look at what's happening in the race and what's been happening in the race so far, it's been not necessarily impacted by people's policy preferences, because I think people, Democrats seem to be broadly happy with the selection that they have and, and broadly happy with the um, policy choices of, of, of all of the candidates, frankly, but that people are worried about um, how the events of the campaign and how President Trump's behavior is affecting their likelihood of winning the general election. So long story short, I thought, therefore, it would be a good idea to get Rachel Bittacoffer back on the podcast. Rachel was um, a guest in one of my favorite episodes about six months ago when I asked her the question, will Trump win re-election? Um, and her clear answer, based on the modeling that she's been doing of um, voter behavior, and her predictive model, which was very, very accurate for 2018, um, told her that she was confident that Donald Trump would not win re-election, that any Democrat was in a favored position to win re-election. I was curious if anything that had happened had changed Rachel's mind about that. 
And also, which of these candidates is our best bet if we want to go into the election feeling happy and confident and encouraged? Um, what are the what are the positive characteristics we should be looking for? What are the trade offs? Um, are any of these candidates um, electoral suicide for us? Um, so it was a great conversation with Rachel, really wide ranging and thoughtful and interesting as always with Rachel. Um, I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. I am delighted to welcome back onto the podcast one of my all-time favorite guests, uh, Rachel Bittekoffer, um, out of Virginia, who is an absolutely brilliant uh, researcher and political modeler. Um, Rachel, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do. So my name is Rachel Bittekoffer. Um, I'm at um, a liberal arts college called Christopher Newport University in the Hampton Roads region of Virginia um, in the U.S. And I am also a senior research fellow at the Niskanen Center in D.C., which is this awesome uh, America-saving think tank. And uh, I do a lot of stuff. I'm 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 doing too many things, <laughs> but probably most relevant here is my election forecasting and analysis work, um, which I do a lot of. I've got a, I had a very successful uh, premier forecast in 2018 for the midterm um, in the House, and I have bent that stuff now to 2020 election, and I'm sure we're going to talk quite a bit about that. We, we've got a few questions about that for sure. Um, so I'm really happy to have you back on. I think let's start let's start with the um, the ritual leaving of the neuroses. <laughs> when you were when you were last on the podcast, you 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 soothed my soul quite a bit um, by telling me that according to your data modeling, um, that virtually any Democrat um, that we would nominate is in very good position to win the general election against Donald Trump. Has anything changed? Are we still okay, Rachel? Yeah, no, nothing's changed for that. I mean, we can talk about degrees, though, right? Certainly think that that's a um, uh, important conversation to have. Uh, degrees of um, comfort or like, you know, uh, maximizing, you know, comfort for Democrats. So, uh, you know, different combinations on the ticket produce different uh, levels of comfort for Democrats. And I'm happy to talk about what those are and why. Yes, that would be very, very helpful. I think that's that's one of the things I want to talk about today. And one of the reasons I wanted to get you back on is, um, although when you were on the, the podcast six months ago, um, from from then to now, it feels like a lot's happened in, in a lot of ways. A lot of candidates dropped out. A lot of candidates came in. Um, we've had, it feels like an infinite number of debates and, and, you know, impeachment, all kinds of stuff has happened. But in another way, it feels like fundamentally, Something has it. Things are very much the same in one respect, which is that it still feels like voters on the Democratic Party are trying to make educated guesses about who the most electable candidate will be in this election. What do you think are the factors that we should be considering? Because it feels to me like people don't quite know what they're looking for. Well, I think people are really tied up in a knot in this cycle in a way that they normally wouldn't be. Because I think they understand the grave um, stakes of this cycle. And, you know, in 2016, there was a stakes feeling, too. I think the Democrats understood going to the polls that Donald Trump was in a pretty strong position heading into Iowa uh, in terms of the Republican primary, though I think still... 
there was a sense that, you know, he could fall apart at any minute or somebody else is going to come in at the last second and save the Republican Party. <laughs> right. And then certainly through the general election, um, Democrats had that sense that he could he would not win. Right. Um, so I think in this case, though, you know, Trump is the president now. And three years in, it, it has been as worse or, you know, as bad or worse than anyone could have anticipated, um, you know, certainly in terms of Demo- for Democrats in terms of policy, but in so many other more impactful ways, just in terms of American institutions, norms and things like that. And I think people are nervous that they're going to make a decision that that causes the Democrats to re-install um, Trump in for a second term. And I think that that is giving people a much higher rate of anxiety, say, than like a normal re-election uh, prospect because of that extra anti-democratic authoritarian twist that Trump presents. You have accurately described all my feelings. It's like you're inside my soul, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> But um, your model um, and your, you know, your model that was very accurate in the 2018 midterm election, it doesn't use sort of traditional polling methodologies to, to take an educated guess about the outcome. You're looking at negative partisanship. Tell me about, again, about how that works, what it all means, and, and whether there's been any kind of shifts in those numbers over the past six months or so. Yeah, so negative partisanship is a concept that comes out of research in political science into research on po- on polarization. Um, and I don't really know who first invented the concept. I'm the, I have taken negative partisanship and applied it to electoral behavior, to, to actually, you know, showing up to vote and to vote choice. But in terms of what it is, is, you know, you've got um, positive feelings towards your party. And then you have the angst, fear, threat, and sadness that you feel towards the other party, hence the negative emotions, right? So negative partisanship refers to those negative aspects that you feel towards the opposition party as a member of a party, right? And so um, in terms of of our current environment, which is especially in America here, very polarized, um, and, and you really can see this play out very differently than what we just saw in the UK, right, um, where you had a lot of crossover voting against um, Jeff, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, where you had a lot of long term um, voters uh, shifting party allegiance to vote against Corbyn. Yep. In the US, that is very, very, very rare be- right now because people have this team mentality. And in fact, it's so strong that right now about 43 or so percent of our public and, you know, 53 members of our Senate and, you know, uh, 193-ish members of our House, like, will not, cannot, do not acknowledge the facts of the Ukraine scandal, right? They, to them, like, they're, they cannot acknowledge that Donald Trump, you know, abused the powers of the presidency, tried to organize this giant scandal to get the, you know, Ukrainian president to dig dirt up on his political opponent, and that these are absolutely, you know, unequivocally not things that an American president should be doing, right? Uh, <laughs> to right? say the least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but if you'll notice when Republicans talk about Ukraine, they very rarely do they acknowledge just the existence of that evidence, right? 
those are things that are 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 very different about our political system. Uh, thing, not things that existed <laughs> would have existed even ten short years ago. Rachel, when we think about negative partisanship, because you're right, it is amped up to a fever pitch in America. Um, and I'm curious, when have we when have we seen have we seen negative partisanship in this degree at this scale before? And is this something that just gets ever more intense, or are there situations that we've seen in the past in other countries, perhaps, or even in parts of the U.S., where negatives and partisanship has risen and then fallen again? What what is the trajectory of this? Any ideas? Well, not so much negative partisanship, which is, which is just a symptom of polarization. But uh, <laughs> luckily, there is a measure of polarization that we have, uh, political science has, because of the hard work of you know, a brilliant team of political scientists uh, many years ago now, came up with a, a system of measuring ideology in Congress that was a, a completely unbiased estimator, and it measures um, ideology of individual members of Congress, and thus the whole chamber, for each chamber, all the way back to the very first Congress till today, right? And if you use that data, you can actually see that America has gone through a previous polarized era. Um, You know, our polarized era now begins in like the like 80s, 90s, but really picks up steam after the 2000 redistricting and then goes nuts. Uh, in the case of the other polarized era, that was in the 1840s, 1850s, and then of course it ends in the 1860s with the American Civil War. Can we try not to do it that way this time? Yeah, see, I mean, I and I say that not for hyperbole's sake, and I do tell people, you know, when I'm looking at 2020, I don't look so much at 2016 as a guide as I look at the election of 1860 as a guide, because we really are in that precarious of a position. Uh, in 1860s election, we had two intractable positions, right? We had you know, the South, who um, was tired of compromise on the issue of, of slavery, and so was the North, and it, things were obviously coming to a head. The public was forced to choose on this question. <clears throat> they chose on the behalf of the, this new Republican political party that was very vocally interested in pushing the part the, the country away to, away of away from slavery and you know because of the heated rhetoric and the hypertensions and the polarization once Lincoln was elected the south you know moved in ways that you know kind of made war inevitable right <laughs> um, you know we have succession I mean it, it's just very it's just very comparable unfortunately to where we are. Oh dear. <laughs> well, there you go. And and the other side has more guns, so there we oh, go. Oh yes, significantly <laughs> more guns. That's very true. Um, you know, in terms of preservation of the union, um, you know, I, I think uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, the election of 2020 is, I don't believe, um, you know, a situation where you have a region looking to succeed from the <laughs> union, right? Uh, but in terms of, like, will the election solve the problem, right? Trump is a symptom, not a cause of America's problems. He's a terrible symptom. <laughs> he has pushed the, um, you know, we had, like, an open wound, 
And then Donald Trump came and started to stab it, right? And they ripped yeah. the fissure open and infected it. And now it's infected. But, you know, let's say Trump does lose in 2020. There's going to be a massive blowback to that loss in, in within the um, MAGA like uh, component of the electorate. Trump himself has demonstrated time and time again that he doesn't lose gracefully, <laughs> you know, and, and he doesn't seem to have an appreciation either for potential uh, ramifications of not losing gracefully. And then you think about what what has happened to the Republican Party in these in this time period. I mean, the Republican Party was engaged in an internal civil war itself when Trump came along. His ascendancy was a hostile takeover of the party, but it was a completion. Uh, the Tea Party Revolution um, had put it into place, you know, a lot of structure, uh, taken out a lot of mainstream members of the Republican Party in the process of, of getting towards where Trump came to take over the head of the party. And so, you know, when we're really talking about in terms of, uh, you know, post-2020 environment, is a situation in which the Trump might leave, and I think there are special dangers to Trump in particular in terms of you know the fact that he continually talks about things that aren't true or aren't real, and, and I mean that's disturbing because he's the American president, so you want somebody who's living in the in reality, right? Um, and he's and he's obviously extremely corrupt in terms of the nepotism and the corruption, but in terms of the philosophical elements of Trumpism, those are things that are actually, you know, larger than the man himself. And, yeah. and I think are going to continue well beyond his uh, tenure in office. So speaking of the deranged right wing that Trump is now king of, <laughs> um, I've been doing quite a few media interviews lately around impeachment and just talk, trying to explain to the UK media what's actually happening uh, with the impeachment conversation. And I keep being opposite Republicans who just spew this sewage at me. <laughs> um, and one of the, you know, just nonsensical sewage of a combination of ad hominem attacks and uh, assertions without fact and, um, you know, claims of authority that are based on nothing and all sorts of things. One of the things they keep saying is, well, that, you know, thanks, Democrats, you've guaranteed Trump's reelection with impeachment. Now, I don't find that particularly convincing, um, but do they have any kind of a point? Is there any extent to which impeachment has made um, the polarization on the Republican side intensified in ways that we can't match? So, um, no, I mean, here's the thing about uh, uh, unless they have reversed how human psychology normally works, I would say no, because, you know, when we think about how human psychology works, it is not loser, it's not winners of things that come away energized and galvanized, right? It's losers. I mean, that's why we're living in this post-Trump uh, election electoral environment that's so favorable to Democrats because they lost the 2016 election, Trump's in office, and that Democratic electorate has just been fired up in every election sense and will be while the man is sitting in office, right? So, um, and then when we, we think about this impeachment issue, you know, um, Trump raised some money off of impeachment, but that does not um, add in or consider the fact that these Democratic primary candidates outraised him 
by like three times, maybe four times combined, right? Um, so like there's obviously a ton of energy there in terms of fundraising. And then, um, you know, we think about what's going to happen. The acquittal is going to come. There is, you know, this everyone talks about, oh, well, this acquittal is a sure thing. Of course, it's coming. And, you know, I know it, the Republicans are going to acquit him and da, da, da. And we know, I know government's broken and da, 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 da. But, you know, there will be, in the moment that this acquittal happens, a loss of innocence in American political culture. It will be a shock to the system, even if everyone expects it. Uh, you can see this in the um, way that Democratic senators talk about their colleagues in media interviews. I uh, can see, you know, there is still this, like, small shred of hope that the institution's going to hold and function the way it should, that the evidence can matter that you know reason will win and prevail because we're durable we're the united states and here what did vindman say here right matters right um and when the actual impeachment day uh, the acquittal day comes even though it's been expected it is gonna hurt right and a lot of people are going to, there's going to be a massive backlash to it, I think. So, um, you know, I do think that the chickens will come home to roost for the Republicans, especially these GOP senators and these swing contests uh, when it comes to that November election. Okay. Well, before that November election um, comes a whole series of primary elections, um, state by state. And even though it feels like I've been running this podcast for you know, the age of the known universe. It's we haven't even voted yet. Not 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 a single person has voted yet in any elections. Um, but we're only a couple of weeks away from the Iowa caucuses. Now, the last time we spoke, you told me that one of the things we should be looking for as an early sign of whether your model's prediction is bearing out is high turnout in the primaries. Um, first of all, does that still hold true? And if so, what should we be looking for coming out of Iowa? What would what would a good result for Democrats look like cumulatively? Yes, ma'am. I'm still looking uh, for extremely high participation in the primaries that will start with participation in the Iowa caucus. I'm looking at, um, you know, wanting to see participation that looks like the 2008 participation um, you know, I, it should look at least like that. If it looks better than that, then that's going to be a really good sign. Um, and if it doesn't look as good as 2008, then you might see me roll back a couple of my predictions because mm -hmm. that would be not a good sign. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't expect that to happen. I think we're going to see a large turnout in all of these primaries, at least through Super Tuesday. But um, I guess time will tell. I'm just happy to know to be able to say that I will be able to talk about turnout uh, live from De Des Moines, Iowa, where I will be on a caucus site. Oh, um, exciting. Try to strategically put myself at a caucus site <laughs> that's going to be, uh, you know, uh, diverse in terms of the participant, uh, you know, the types of participants it will draw so that I can get a good sense of, you know, a good uh, competition uh, you know, obviously, if you go to a, a caucus site near the university, you're going to have a, a pretty boring caucus because it will be all Bernie Sanders town, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's one question that I have about the caucuses in particular. Obviously, we're going to have a whole series of, of primaries coming up. But I'm curious, with Iowa being the first the first of the nominating contest, um, 
And obviously with it being a caucus, which the Democratic Party is is kind of trying to discourage caucuses because they're seen as undemocratic with a small d. Um, in that participation is difficult. I'm curious, caucuses typically... They, they favor candidates who are good at grassroots organization, who are good at getting out very kind of intense and highly engaged voters, not necessarily kind of broad coalitions. How indicative is the kind of peculiarity of Iowa? Or should we be looking more towards like what might be happening in New Hampshire or South Carolina? Is Iowa a good test for your theory? Well, it is true that the caucus has those problems that you caucus, you know, caucus general, right? But the Iowa caucus <laughs> is kind of an exception to the rule, right? Uh, because Iowa's caucus is this, you know, first in the nation institution, and you know, candidates have been spending months on the on hand, and Iowa's uh, voters are, you know, have been, you know, t- taught to use the caucus, like it's. It's kind of a different situation, you know, so like the but in general, you're absolutely right. A caucus is definitely going to produce a more ideological electorate because it's going to be people who are more partisan that want to get involved in the caucus, uh, people who are more, you know, motivated. Right. So that's what, why they're more partisan and therefore probably more ideological uh, and, you know, therefore less representative, representative, um, you're definitely going to get a bias towards older people who have more time. You're going to bias towards people who have more money, um, be able to take the time off. So there, you know, it's certainly not the most representative system out there. Mm-mm. Yeah. But it's beautiful madness though. I do, I do enjoy a caucus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly, like I said, the Iowa caucus is different because it's been operating now for, you know, since 1978 or something like that. And it's um, 76 and it's, uh, you know, it's this institution. So it's got, you know, all of this embedded infrastructure and time and commitment. So it's a, it's a different situation, but like, you know, Nevada uses a caucus and that's a new caucus. So it's definitely um, a whole different ball game over there. And, you know, would they be better? Would it be more representative to have a, a primary? Absolutely. Yeah. So that that's a big advantage, for example, for Sanders in terms mm-hmm. of beating Biden, though, you know, a caucus is going to benefit Sanders in this cycle. Yeah, I, I, that's kind of one of the things I wanted to go into is um, Biden feels like, well, let's let's go through it. Let's go through some of the possible outcomes of the Iowa caucus and think through. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the from an electability point of view, um, what the potential impacts could be in terms of our degree of comfort, as you were talking about earlier. So the interesting thing about Iowa is it's been it's it's been a pretty tight race in Iowa. And there are basically four candidates who, depending on different polling and kind of changing really rapidly, potentially could win. Bernie Sanders seems to be doing very well there. Um, Joe Biden, who's the front runner nationally, has been probably comparatively weak in Iowa. The demographics don't really match up with him, but still he's been a solid contender and, and has it has every chance of, of 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 being one of the one of the contenders to win Iowa, um, and then Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg have both had kind of moments of surge in Iowa. Um, it feels like kind of a four way race there at the moment. Um, potentially the fact that the senators, so Sanders and Warren, both need to be in the Senate right now because of impeachment. It's cutting into the time they have to make a last minute Iowa pitch, so that could change things up. Which 
outcome coming out of Iowa and with all the media kind of attention and the sense of momentum that comes out of it, which outcome of the four would you envision as being potentially the best and worst for us from a purely electoral point of view to the extent there's any any kind of data behind that? So in terms of winner, you mean? In terms of a winner. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I think there's all just, I think there's just different outcomes with different pitfalls and different strengths, right? Okay, so uh, let's say it was Sanders. Yeah, yeah, let's take yeah. that in order. So, so let's yeah, say Sanders. Yeah. So, well, you know, definitely the biggest weakness to, to, to a Sanders nomination is, uh, you know, the belief that he that he can't win <laughs> moderates over and that the socialist label is going to be unelectable. And then you have, you know, the, the party mainstream party is terrified that he is going to, you know, reelect Trump. And, you know, that, 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 um, when people don't believe in the nominee, right. That's a bad, that's bad. Good insight. Yeah. I mean, we saw what happened with, with Donald Trump when, you know, the party didn't believe in Donald Trump and they didn't invest heavily in him and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I don't think still one though. I don't think the party's going to pull back investment from Sanders in this in this environment. Um, You know, Bloomberg says he's going to spend heavily on behalf of this nominee. Is he going to do that for Sanders? I don't know. You know, I think he's still going to spend pretty heavily on behalf of the Senate candidates, but he may roll back some of that really valuable spending if it's Sanders in particular. I think that's also possible with Warren. You know, I think both of those two candidacies are for the mainstream of the party, you know, the scariest propositions, right? Here's to me like the biggest risk of a Sanders nomination is not rec- is not recognizing that it's not it can't just all be about ideology, right? So if he wins, what's he going to do? Pick Warren? You know, that would be a major mistake. The the Democratic Party is uh, you know, a party of diversity, racial diversity. <laughs> so he needs he's no different than Biden. He needs mm-hmm. a woman of color on the ticket with him or a person of color, at least yeah. on the ticket with him, not and another, a younger person of yeah, color, <laughs> Yeah, much younger. And he doesn't need so he doesn't need another Bernie Sanders on the ticket with him. You know, that's for sure. He doesn't ideologically. He doesn't need another person that's, you know, far to the left on the ideological spectrum. He needs somebody to reach out to the other component of the coalition, right? Mm-hmm. And so the far left can't make the same mistake that they always bitch about the other side making. Um, yeah. You know, so I think the biggest risk, I mean, the biggest weakness definitely is that he's going to get attacked for being a socialist, right? I mean, he's a democratic socialist, but that's not um, a, a quarry, a favor that the um, GOP is going to give him. They're going to, they have him on video, you know, talking about socialism. So it's going to be, you know, a weakness and, and, and just depends too on how much the Democrats have learned about running into things and not away from them, right? You can't, you have to run into stuff and not away from them. So, you know, I think that's a, a big thing, but if Biden's the nomination nominee, I mean, we've all seen Biden throughout this presidential nomination cycle, he is uh, clearly getting older in terms of his ability to be, you know, sharp and, you know, engaged on the stump. So campaigning is not his strength. He might, you know, uh, it doesn't matter how good at being president you are. What The job we're hiring first is winning the job, yeah. right? 
Um, and Biden is you know, a little rough on the stump. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, but the the biggest weakness in Biden, I mean, certainly the biggest um, you know benefit of Biden is you know he's most likely to get the Trump to Obama. Uh, Obama to Trump voters to come back, those people, right? We already know 30% of them have buyer's remorse, um, you know, but those people are not the end-all be-all of how to win 2020, right? Uh, uh, so much of the um, analysis world, election analyst world, uh, the campaign consultant, punditry world acts like the only pathway vic- for victory for Democrats is to get these Trump, Obama to Trump voters to switch sides again, Right. And there is a pathway there that, you know, doesn't involve those people hardly at all. OK, <laughs> you know, get, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to get a chunk of them back, number one, because a chunk of them went in the first place because they're what we call change voters. They vote for change every four years for, you know, whoever's not the incumbent. Uh, and that's the same um, story for pu- uh, a lot of pure independents. Right. So those. A lot of those Trump to Obama to Trump voters are are these um, standard anti-status quoians that vote against the status quo every four years because they're never happy with the status quo, mm-hmm. and so and this time Trump's the status quo, right? Um, so you don't have to pander to them, in other words, right? Um, certainly, you don't have to design an entire campaign around them. Um, and uh, in terms of Biden's biggest weakness, you know, you've got Trump has turned this Hunter Biden Barisma thing. Uh, they're going to use that to try to tear by. I mean, it doesn't matter that it's just it's number one fake, but number two, one thing compared to Trump's, you know, four hundred things of corruption, the whole family. The children, I mean, they're running basically a, a racket in the White House right now. None of that stuff matters because to the average voter and the, the GOP, like advertising system, they will make Biden look terrible to the average voter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's probably his biggest weakness. And then his second biggest weakness is an un, he obviously does not understand that the electorate has moved on, right? He's mm-hmm. still living in the old world. And in the old world, he thinks probably, you know, he should pick Amy Klobuchar because she's super popular in the Midwest. And, you know, but again, here's this Democratic Party of 2020 represented by two white people, Mm -hmm. right? Just like 2016, represented by two white people. And you know what happened in 2016? You know, number one, the ticket didn't have anybody liberal on it to, to, you know, olive branch to the progressives. So a lot of them defected and voted for protest candidates or didn't vote, especially the under 40 crowd. And um, a lot of the voters of color didn't show up that had showed up for Obama. And when you look at those two things, that massive lack of interest, those are big things, you know, that the Biden campaign is, I think, more likely than some other campaigns to mess up. You know, you definitely want to have diversity on the ticket. I think that's a really, I think there's a, a point that you kind of just touched on there, which is about um, one of my worries with Biden is his ability to organize. Um, now, Obama, obviously he was on the Obama ticket twice, but Obama 2008 and Obama 2012, one of the things that had going for it really well was they did a great job at mobilization and voter outreach. Um, They just had fantastic people on the ground who really understood things like digital campaigning, who understood door-to-door outreach. 
I feel like Joe Biden's campaigning skills in that sense are very rusty, very old school. I'm not sure he knows how to hire and manage a group of people who are running the kind of campaign that we need to run in 2020 in order to win. Are my fears about that overblown? I mean, to what extent do you think just the mechanics of running a campaign operation in a sophisticated 2020 kind of way are something that we can select for in a candidate? No, you're not. I mean, these are not overblown fears, because if you just try to run television ads and run a 1990s campaign in this environment, you are in bad shape. Like the Democratic Party, you know, had they had Obama's team in place in 2016 would have been better off. Right. Um, You know, they got their asses kicked, frankly, because all the Trump team did was outsource all their GOTV to the RNC. And the RNC's operation is way better on voter turnout than it uh, than the D trip is right Than the uh, D trip and the um, DNC. DN, uh, the Senate version, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's 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 super modernized, digitalized, centralized. You know, they have a, a fantastic infrastructure for it, and the Democrats, you know, have to understand that if they want to win anywhere, like Colorado, Maine, flip Wisconsin back, whatever it is, ultimately, what's going to decide a state flipping back or not is what percent of the electorate that shows up is Democrat or lean Democrat versus what percent that shows up is Republican or lean Republican. And yeah. if they don't if they don't make the make their vote share the dominant vote share, they're going to lose. <laughs> yeah and i mean i i mean because i work in i've done a lot of worked in marketing and and you know social media outreach data data management whatever i know that from a corporate point of view all the difference between profit and no profit is kind of really at the margins it's getting that extra shave of a half of a percent of a point of you know, of, of, of efficiency in your ads, of getting just that little bit of extra tweak and over a campaign, you, you multiply that by every action. And then you realize that you've got very limited time. So it's not like you can stretch it, you know, the election day is a hard deadline. And so it's, it's really important that we have a machine that's operating at full functionality. Um, I'm just worried that that Biden doesn't have that. Sanders, although very old, (laughs) You know, he's generationally the same the same kind of bracket as uh, as Biden. But because he's had to run, I say had to because he has been running a campaign for the last you know several years, even since losing in the last primary, he's kept the operation going. It, he has a team that's learned to do that. Warren's team has learned to do a lot of this stuff. They've been really smart and savvy with it. Um, Buttigieg's team, I have to say, yeah, like they've yeah. been really sharp and on the ball, and they have they have the kinds of people in their coalition who are really good at this kind of stuff. Yes, like, yeah, yeah, smart. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I see a lot of potential for for getting this right. Biden's the only one I look at, and I think, does he know how to do this? I'm not sure. And well, he, he has a run. He, he hasn't run doesn't. himself yeah, 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 personally yeah. for election for a very long yeah. time. No, no, you're 100% right. So, like, when you ask me which candidate is most, you know, to me, I'm much less concerned about the candidate than I am the team around the candidate. Yeah. <laughs> that's what makes, you know, that's the shit that I care about, right? Who's running, beh- who's running behind the candidate? What kind of strategy are they running? And how much do they recognize the importance of turnout in their efforts, because if they don't get that, you know, Arizona's got to have 
a massive investment in Latino turnout. And, you know, the Philadelphia, Detroit, and Chicago suburbs in Wisconsin are the key. If you want to win the Midwest back, that's where it's going to happen or not. It's yeah. either going to happen there or you're losing all three of them, right? And, uh, and on the flip side, you know, you've got this Trump campaign, you know, people like to sneer at ba- Brad Parscale because he's making millions of dollars off of Trump because, you know, who wouldn't? Because guy, everyone around yeah, him yeah. is a scammer and a con yeah, yeah, artist, yeah, yeah. but Ever, sometimes yeah. those are effective communicators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, just because he's scamming and getting, you know, the checks doesn't mean he, the dude doesn't know what he's doing. And he does. He's He knows exactly what he's doing. He's got a great plan. <laughs> if, and I know it's a good plan because it would, if I was there and I was running their plan, that's what I'd be doing. So it's yeah. a good plan. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so let's talk about that because you alluded to the fact of getting the whole coalition out is going to be part of the problem. Now I've said but just a minute ago that Pete Buttigieg, for example, I think is is smart and has it has good people around him. The downside, the argument against Pete, um, has been can he actually activate the whole of the Democratic coalition? In particular, there's been some concerns about whether he will get minority voters um out in support of him. What do you think about that? Do you think if he were the nominee, let's let's imagine hypothetically that he became the nominee, do you think he would have a problem with African-American mobilization, for example? Or do you think that 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 the party would rally and the community would rally? It would be less of an issue. Yeah, no, I don't think he'd have a problem at all. I mean, the reason he doesn't have support right now amongst the African-American community is the mainstream of the Democratic Party is not you know they're flint they're they're uh, fractured but mostly behind biden and the mainstream of the democratic party especially at the state level is comprised of a lot of black activists right and you know if they all moved against biden and into Buttigieg's camp tomorrow the rest of you know the rest of the uh, black vote would move with it yeah so you yeah. don't see necessarily that there would be that he would struggle to to maintain Obama levels of African American turnout. Well, he would because that because that, that was a, that was that was an impressive thing to I do, mean, and it was hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, here's the thing, right? Trump, the Trump effect, the Trump effect is there. It's going to be there for everyone. If it's Biden, Sanders, whoever the hell it is, right? This Trump turnout abounds has, has generated about a ten point increase in turnout in every election that's been held or cycle since Trump was elected. It's going to be there. Turnout is going up for everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's going to go up in 2020. And it's going to go up for whites. It's going to go up for Latinos. It's going to go up for blacks. And it doesn't matter who it is. Okay. But then it can go up more or less depending on the ticket, right? And the candidate and the ticket. So like you asked me, can Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg motivate enough black people in 2020? Probably because of the Trump effect. But if we want to really cross our T's and draw and dot our I's and have Boot Pete, Mayor Pete as the nominee, then you put Stacey Abrams on the other side of the ticket. Right? Frankly, Stacey Abrams <laughs> is looking like a good VP for anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I make that point quite a bit because if yeah. you really just want, to, if you're a Democrat and you're just trying to ri- minimize the risk of losing, then you put Stacey Abrams on the VP slot. And I think Stacey Abrams is aware that she's in that position. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you want to minimize the risk of losing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it'd be nice if, if she had run and she could be the main, 
you know, the main nominee, and then we could have thrown like Julian Castro on as the deep, and then <laughs> would have had the Latino vote too, and yeah, or then would have been really great for Democrats, but you know, the, you know, so. Okay, so I think bottom line is any one of the four people coming out of Iowa, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, if it's Joe Biden, we might need to give him a remedial class in running a campaign 2020, but but, <laughs> but each of them um, has the ability to bring the coalition together um, and get them to the polls, one would hope. Yeah, here's, you know, I always try to offer the candidates advice when I do podcasts. So, you know, Joe, if you're listening, don't hire Hillary's team. <laughs> they, you know whoever whoever the team was that told her to hire tim kane because she'd be able to convince you know republicans to vote for her that person should not be telling you how to win yeah i mean that's it that's a good point because tim kane's a lovely guy and oh, governor yeah. oh yes no, fantastic senator virginia fantastic <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. wonderful yeah. human being ah, yeah, but yeah, he was ah. not an electoral asset he wasn't no, adding he wasn't yeah, adding yeah. new votes no 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 yeah, yeah. No, it, it, yeah. I mean, it, it, it literally, if she, if she had made just one thing different and just put a progressive on the ticket with her, she'd prop. We would not be living in this nightmare. <laughs> I mean, but it was the kind of election, wasn't it, where it was like in a million scenarios, you'd probably only get the outcome you got in a couple of them, right? I mean, almost yeah. anything being different. I mean, yes, but no. But like, you know, here's the thing. When they sat around and they thought, what do we do with this vice presidential pick? Yeah. I 100% know someone was set, someone was like, you know, we've got these disgruntled never Trump. We've got these moderate Republicans. They're never going to vote for this guy. Look at this guy. He's he's a clown, man. He, he He's a jerk. He's a clown. That's just not, it's just never going to happen. And if I had been in the room, I would have said, look, let me show you this data. That mm. is not how the electorate behaves anymore. You are making a mistake, right? And like my concern with the Bidens of the world is that they are still filling the room with people who don't get that. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not, I mean, Joe Biden and, to, you know, to his credit in many ways, he has been able to operate for decades in a political world where he found a way to navigate around partisanship um and you know that helped him get some things done so he you yeah, know he's that a true, was a different time though. it was I a mean, different it, time like literally 100%. literally i could literally show him <laughs> in the data like there's a point of divergence in the data yeah it shouts out of the data you know what i mean so like that's the problem for all of this old school class of consultants of yeah. campaign people like james carvel the analyst you know, that the reason they are having this problem is that they can't separate the past from now. And they can't accept that things have changed that much, even as they're watching like something like this impeachment, right, where the evidence is just so overwhelming. right? And they're, they're going to watch this acquittal and they still cannot comprehend like the things have changed and, and, and the implications that that has. So, OK. So that all being the case, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was I saw you tweet something that I thought was really interesting. Um, so coming coming to this whole progressive, let's let's talk about the ideological divisions in the party. Um, 
there is the, one of the ideological divisions that we've seen coming out in a lot of debates and so forth has been around healthcare. There's a faction of the party, let's say the Sanders Warren faction, um, which is for effectively converting to a single payer system, a Medicare for all system, and a faction of the party that's wants to be more aggressive in healthcare, wants to improve the system, but is trying to be a little bit more incremental. So let's say the Klobuchar, Biden, etc. You tweeted that the data shows that the people who are arguing for Medicare for all have have lost the argument. Tell me about that, just in the public mindset. What 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 are you? What did you see that made you say that? What what do we need to know? Yeah. Uh, so you know, and and I want to explain that a little bit too. You know, here's why. I mean, here's the thing. You know, it's not like the Amy Klobuchar's of the world wouldn't love to have a functional healthcare system, more like the Canadians or the Germans or something like that. Right. It's just that they are uh, pragmatists that are that understand like I can come out on the stump and tell you, hey, we're going to have Medicare for all. Like that's what Bernie and Warren do. It, they cannot implement the system in the current Congress. It's not going to it just cannot happen. Right. So some people cannot make promises that they don't feel it has, you know, uh, viability to actually deliver on. OK, um, so there's some of that, but more so. It's this, you know, this belief within the Klobuchar's of the world, the Bidens of the world, the mainstream liberal media, you know, the New York Times, the, the Morning Joe panels, you know, the MSNBCs of the world, that that type of policy proposal is going to make you guys lose the election because it can be weaponized against you by saying, hey, these people want to take away your insurance, Right. So like there is, you know, because it's not just getting fire from the, the right, it's getting fire from that centrist element of the party for the purpose of they think it, it's dangerous in terms of its electoral value. Uh, that's why I meant when I said like the Medicare for all team isn't a real pickle in terms of the messaging. Just add to the conversation about messaging on Medicare for all, right? I mean, here's the thing, too. Some of that stems from the realization or the, you know, understanding that the, the Democrats don't have the messaging disciplines, discipline or the strategic, you know, understanding of messaging to fight that war. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because like, you know, here you've got, you know, even even their own like the, the liberal media, basically is constantly talking about this talking point of, of private, everyone losing their private insurance. So, you know, they'll say, oh, da, 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 and this plan, and, you know, what? how are they going to sell this plan when it takes 100, kicks 129 million people off their insurance, right? I mean, you hear how that goes, right? Yeah, so you have this, you know, you have to work within this cons construct of this messaging apparatus that is the democratic messaging you know, apparatus. And it's, it's just, it's a, not a, it's terrible at offense, right? It doesn't do offensive messaging at all, let alone do it well. So, um, you know, I think that when you, when I say, okay, the left is losing the messaging war on Medicare for all, right? When you look at, um, you know, how would a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren carry that message into the general, they are going to have to be massively aggressive on it because any sign of weakness is just going to be, you know, the death knell. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
And when you say sign of weakness, so like you say you like to give advice to candidates. Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren um, could use some advice. She came out. She's been Medicare for all from for for ages. She was taking a lot of hits for not saying um, whether she would whether there would be middle class tax rises in her version of Medicare for all. She then kind of went away and came back with a more detailed revised plan, which seemed to go over like a lead balloon because she was she was doing really well in the polls and dropped shortly after that. Given that she is where she is now, and she's kind of then since just pivoted away from healthcare, she's wanted to talk about other things. If you were on Elizabeth Warren's campaign right now, what would you suggest to her to do specifically on healthcare? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, she what she should have done is she should have copied Bernie Sanders' detailed plan on Medicare for all and just gone with that. Yeah. You know. Oh, wait, that's right. Bernie doesn't have a detailed plan on her. (laughs) She should have copied his plan of not having a plan. That's what I'm saying. Before the Sanders fans come after me, let me explain what I mean. In a campaign, for God's sakes, don't ever release a detailed plan with a price tag that starts with a T, let alone 23 Ts, okay? And Sanders gets this, right? So he never put out a detailed plan, (laughs) Because, you know, Medicare for all is going to cost a shit ton of money. So, you know, just go with vague. And, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. That was a strategic era on the Warren, um, you know, Warren team's plan. She tanked in the polls, you know, with the release of the $23 trillion detailed Medicare for all plan. Uh, some people have pointed out, you know, why is she getting hammered for this detailed plan when the other plan's not laid out? You know, that's that's just how politics is. And like I said, you're not, you know, one thing to make a good president, another to get them to the office. Right. Uh, And you really have to understand the the clay that you're working with, with the electorate. And and, you know, I mean, Donald Trump. Right. I'm going to build you a great big wall. I'm going to get Mexico to pay for it. Right. I mean, that's not a that's that's not a good plan. It's not a feasible plan. (laughs) It's great campaign slogan. right? So you're right. uh, Warren really did screw that up. And, uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard to roll it back. I mean, they're they're moving into Iowa now. The time is is tick, tick, ticking. I mean, more so she really needs Sanders to do something right. Uh, Sometimes you need uh, like Bloomberg is hoping Biden does something that will shake his support amongst uh, uh, voters of color. And, um, you know, Warren is in a position, unfortunately, now where she has to hope that Sanders, you know, does something that that is going to, you know, put him in his own tailspin. Um, And, you know, that's always tough when you're hoping on somebody else to make a mistake. But, you know, with the Medicare for all stuff, I mean, in terms of that general election, I mean, either one of those two nominees because they own the issue, are going to have to run an affirmative, you know, unapologetic, you know, this is what we're doing plan. Um, they're, you know, probably if I was them, I would uh, adopt Buttigieg's uh, Medicare for all who want it, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, compromise position and say, you know, we're going to start this Medicare for all plan. It will be a public option. Uh, initially in Obamacare so we can get it into place as soon as possible and then we're going to start working to phase it in you know Uh, so like kind of a a hybrid stealing the best of Biden and and Buttigieg because you know ultimately I think voters will punish you if you promise them a wall and and you don't deliver it. 
<laughs> well, I hope they will, because <laughs> if the, if they're going to punish people who don't deliver the wall they promised, then yeah. Trump's out. Yeah, well, you know, they, they that also depends on how well the other team makes that a case, right, on yeah. promises broken, right? I, that's why I said if I was running the Democratic strategy in, I, in these swing states, I'd be running a promises broken, promises broken, promises broken, like ceaseless ad campaign against Donald Trump. Yep. Okay, um, Rachel, one more question, and then I want to move on and do the gut check game. Um, but we've talked a bunch about people, about voters of color and the importance of the diversity of our coalition and the fact that, and the fact that the Democratic Party, we always say, it's a messaging you hear a lot, looks like America, um, represents America, etc. And at the start of this primary campaign, we had a primary field that looked very much like America, and now we don't. Um do you think it's coincidental that virtually all of the minority candidates, apart from Andrew Yang, have have washed out of the primary? Or is it telling us something about the anxieties amongst the Democratic coalition? I mean, here's the thing. I was on a panel yesterday where the um, one of the other panelists, not an election expert by any means, thought maybe, you know, Biden and Sanders' prominence and dominance in this cycle is a product of the electorate. It's just freaked out about Trump and they want to stick with you know, these two people that they know and da, 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 da. I'm like, no, you know, honest to God. The problem is, is that, you know, we are, we live in a bubble. We are the intellectual, politically engaged 0.0001%. And out there in the world, the electorate only knew Biden and Sanders. And, and most of them still only know Biden and Sanders. And, <laughs> you know, Biden's doing well because he's the incumbent vice president, spent eight years in the White House with Barack Obama. And he has the, um, you know, he's kind of like the standard bearer of the Democratic mainstream. And he, um, he, the diverse candidates didn't do so good because they were not that person. And that person gets with them, um, a, you know, a, a kind of a, a, you know, this benefit of having voters of color go on their side, you know. And, um, you know, in terms of Sanders, Sanders had this, uh, he was the runner up in the previous cycle and the runner up in these presidential nomination campaigns in both parties tends to be a front runner in the subsequent cycle. Not always, but, you know, some sometimes mostly and starts off with a huge advantage. They both do in this name ID advantage. I mean, people I try to tell people all the time, you know, Elizabeth Warren is still at 20% name ID in the national morning consult Democratic primary tracker. Pete Buttigieg's just getting down into the 30s in terms of people who don't know or never heard of Pete Buttigieg amongst Democratic primary voters nationally. Like, you live in a bubble. Like, yeah. most, you know, most voters cannot name any of these candidates aside from the two that are already well-known before the whole thing began. And that, that just happened to be two old white dudes. I've got a terrific illustration of how far removed my political sensibility is from the level of awareness of the American public. And that's, there's a wonderful tool called Google Trends, which will show you search volumes of kind of people searching for specific terms. And I, I happened to discover that the search term, is Donald Trump a Republican or a Democrat, had serious spikes. I mean, we're talking going from zero to a thousand um, on the day uh, he was nominated on the day of election, on the day, yes. um, on the day that he was in inaugurated and on the day that the, that, that he was impeached. A whole bunch of people, you imagine the world sitting around going, 
Trump, Trump, who's he again? Google search. Yeah. So yeah, we've got to calibrate for 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 yeah. knowledge. Yes, definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rachel, um, are you ready to stick around for just a few minutes and we can play the gut check game? Sure. Let's do it. So for new listeners to the podcast, I have in front of me my trusty Red Sox baseball cap into which I have placed some sayings heard around the campaign trail. In this particular week, I have pulled out some quotes from the candidates from last week's uh, Democratic uh, primary debate. Uh, at the end of the debate, they were asked questions basically to help the, they, basically they were each asked a version of a question which, which which boiled down to tell us why you're electable. Um, I'm going to pull those out of, our, out of a hat at random and we'll react to them. So, All right. Without further ado, here is the first one. This is uh, this is Amy Klobuchar. She argues that she's electable because, quote, I'm going to be able to stand across from him, that's Trump, on the debate stage and say to my friends in Iowa, the Midwest is not flyover country for me. I live here. I'm going to be able to look him in the look at him and say, you've treated these workers and farmers like poker chips. For me, these are my friends and these are my neighbors. What do you make of that argument? I mean, it definitely helps Amy that Amy Klobuchar is from the Midwest. It's an asset for sure. Yep. Yep. It's a, it's definitely an asset. And, um, and she does have of all the people who are on that stage, she's the only one I think who um, has the credential currently of having, having kind of one statewide in a, in a purple state. Um, but it just comes from a red state, comes from a red state, but he's not uh he comes from a blue part of a red state. So Amy Klobuchar outperforms yeah, 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 yeah. Democrats I mean, in Minnesota. Here's one equivocation I want to put on that mm -hmm. though, for, you know, just a little cold water on the Klobuchar phenomenon. Um, <laughs> the Klobuchar bandwagon. Yeah, Minnesota is going to be a, a blue state here in 2020. It went blue in 2016. Yep. It's a highly college educated state. So it's like one of these house districts that I talk about all the time. And, you know, that that is really helpful to Amy Klobuchar. That said, she does overperform, you know, for a Democrat. She does great out there. And, you know, the truth of the matter is if I could wave a magic wand and pick one candidate I think is the most electable out of the whole slew of them, I'd probably put Amy Klobuchar at the top of that ticket. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. Just on demographics or on or on kind of her campaign style? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, the fact that she is uh, extremely likable and from yep. the Midwest, you know, and so I'd put her and then I'd throw Stacey Abrams on the other side and just call it a day. <laughs> call it a day and we're done. Yep. All right. There you go. An, an, an endorsement for Klobuchar's electability argument. <laughs> OK, here's um, here's Joe Biden's electability argument. He says, I have overwhelming support from the African-American community. Overwhelming. More than anyone else in this operation. Number one. Number two. Working class people where I come from in Pennsylvania and the places I come from in Delaware. I have great support. I have support across the board. And I'm not worried about taking on Donald Trump at all. Well, I think Joe Biden's best, um, best thing is that everyone in the never Trump community, these, um, you know, independents, you know, I think. There's a real argument that Joe Biden's going to maximize that part and the turnout part is going to maximize itself. I think that Joe Biden's risk is in not recognizing that voters of color are not as affected by the Trump effect as white voters are. So I think it'd be a tragic mistake for him not to pick uh, Stacey Abrams or somebody like that to run with him. 
Interesting. Tell me more about that. So why are voters of color not as impacted by the Trump effect? Oh, I'm so happy that you asked. This is some excellent research um, for a phenomenon, actually, that I was seeing in my data consistently, and I didn't have really an explanation for. And then I I came across this research from a political scientist uh, named Davin Phoenix, and he... um, it takes, a, I think, a scholar of color to identify this, too. But he had a thesis that threat politics, which is, you know, basically the underlying argument of my research, um, that voters of color would be res- less responsive than white voters because they have less expectations from the system. Yep. So when the system lets them down, they don't respond as, you know, robustly. And and I call I, as soon as I saw his research, I, I wrote to him. And I was like, I, I want you to know, I see this in my, all of my data and I've been wondering, you know, about it. And now I know exactly what's going on with it. And I also know that if Democrats, you know, I, I, I know, you know, I knew Democrats are going to lose a couple of these Virginia state legislative races because of low turnout amongst black voters, because the Trump effect wasn't natural. But now I know exactly theoretically why. And, yeah. and you know, if Democrats ignore that research, to their peril. Very interesting. So I think, and that actually intuitively makes sense to me, and it kind of matches up with a a thing that I've had in my head that seems to be true about African-American voters, which is that, um, and it came out after Trump's election to me, which is the reaction I get from a lot of African-American voters is, Oh, you're shocked, are you? There's yeah, a certain yeah, yeah, cynical, yeah. like, oh, white people, you've oh, discovered no. that America has, you know, malice yeah, in it. You've discovered that there are, you know, it's it's kind of a sense of we've we've been here all along. Welcome to the party. Um, so maybe yeah. it's that, you know, African American voters are already dialed up to the maximum level of threat and and so they're not as sensitive to increase. Maybe that's that's exactly it, because of institutionalized racism, prolonged suffering of that community. Uh, you know, at the hands of this racist system. And yeah, no, it's definitely the most important thing I've learned this year. Very, very interesting. And something I guess we can only overcome with really hard on the ground work. Yes, absolutely. The only way to overcome it is to, in my opinion, give um, African-American voters what they really want, a seat at the table. Give mm-hmm. them a candidate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So give yeah. them some representation and and yes. show up and and show up in their communities. Yes, yes, yes. I mean that's you know that's the that's obviously it right there. You know, like that's why I said. I mean, honestly, if you could really just um, you know have um, a Latino and African American on the ticket would be great. Yeah. Okay, I've got um, I've got one from Pete Buttigieg here. Um, he says I'm ready to take on Donald Trump because when he gets to the tough talk and the chest thumping, he'll have to stand next to an American war veteran and explain how he pretended bone spurs bone spurs made him ineligible to serve. Yeah, so if Pete Buttigieg Judd wasn't a dude, he'd be my number one pick, and let me tell <laughs> right. you why. Because Pete Buttigieg is uh, by far I know I can't say his name. Buttigieg. 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 Well, he holds up this this meme that says Buddha Edge Edge. Okay. Yep. So I try to say it fast. Buddha Edge Edge. All right. That <laughs> try, try the, saying Buddha Judge. Yeah, Buddha Judge. But but that's not what the meme says. The meme says Boot Edge he Edge. Says Boot Edge Edge. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, all right. I've been neither, practicing this for a while. <laughs> neither here nor there. 
and 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 it's and I don't care. It's not that he's gay. I actually think like that is not a, a problem in the age of polarization at all, yeah. right? Yeah. Just like I'm I'm less bear I'm less you know worried about you know Bernie's democratic socialism thing than other analysts because polarization just buys you a floor at least, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So my thing with Pete is this: I can't make black voters love him. I wish I could, <laughs> you know. But here's the thing with him. If there's one person that could stand on the stage of Donald Trump and rip that man a new hole, it is definitely Mayor Pete. I mean, that guy is quick on his feet and he does it in a way that's totally dignified and absolutely, you know, there's no one better at it. Uh, He would definitely be their best, I mean, best, best person to put forward in that regard, you know. So it's, it's a shame that he couldn't be a woman or a woman of color or, you know, but he's, you know, unfortunately he's in a white (laughs) male body and we're just not living at a time period that's, you know, particularly conducive to upstart young white males rising to the top of things. But I think, I think it's interesting. I mean, Buttigieg's argument, his electability for argument uh, for Trump is is a contrast argument. And and I kind of like it. He's basically saying, I am the exact opposite of Donald Trump. Oh my God, in every way. Yeah, like, no, I mean, he, you know, if I, if, if, I mean, he is a, he would be a great nominee against him. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I mean, I like the optics of it. Like he's young, but he's young. Trump is old. He's, you know, Midwestern. Trump is New York. Yeah, he's, yeah, you know, yeah. he's on every level. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 No. Yeah. Definitely buy. I would definitely buy Buddha edge edge stock. <laughs> <laughs> buy Buddha judge. So rush to the betting markets. Okay. Here's yeah. one from Elizabeth Warren. She says, we have a chance to unite, unite as Democrats, but also with also with independents and Republicans who are sick of living in a country that's working great for the politicians that are taking the money. It's working great for the lobbyists. It's working great for the corporate executives. It's just not working for everyone else. I'm building the grassroots movement, leading the fight, and we're going to win that fight. Yeah. So here's the thing with Warren and with Sanders. I'm sure Sanders is in the list somewhere. Here's the thing. Both, you know. I was driving through rural Virginia a couple of weeks ago, rural Virginia on my way up the coast. I passed this billboard somebody had paid for, has this picture of Donald Trump looking good, actually, not one of the doofy pictures. And it said, <laughs> the people's president, right? And, you know, there's only two candidates in this field that can answer a populist president, and that's, that's Sanders and Warren, right? And so, you know, I do think there's this bubble that the consultants, that the mainstream of the Democratic Party, that, you know, D-Trip, all these people live in, the media, the other analysts. And I get it, I think, because I am from, you know, the white working class. I've lived without health insurance for a number of years. I've eaten out of a dumpster before. (laughs) I've gone without being able to see a dentist. Like, they do not understand how tough it is out there for average people on that 60% down on the income distribution, which is, by the way, 60% of the people, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think there is a segment out there of white working class people, and not all white working class people are Trump people, okay? There's a big chunk of them that don't vote and don't participate because they think everyone is corrupt as hell. But they look at someone like Sanders and Warren, and they do see a distinction in them, right? So, you know, I, I am not convinced that either of those two are, you know, DOA on winning the general election. Yeah. 
So it's interesting because because if you look at the the quote that I've given from Warren, she's kind of her argument lately has been interesting in that she's kind of saying, I can be the unity candidate for the Democratic coalition. She's saying, I have the populism of a Sanders and I have his diagnosis of the problems with American capitalism, but I can work within the party. I can be acceptable to the moderate wing and I can bring the coalition together. And I think that's that's interesting for Warren to be the one making that argument. I think she's she's trying to say, you need the Sanders wing of the party and I can be the one who can deliver it and still keep the moderates on side. No, no, she's right about that. I mean, you know, she, like I said, I think, I think, I think she, her problem is this, you know, like she. But then she got uh, into a fight with Bernie Sanders. So. Yeah. So, uh, well, ultimately, you know, I think the factionalism on the left is going to be, I mean, there's, I do think there's a chunk of far left progressives that if it's not Sanders, it's, you know, yeah. that's it. Right. But those people are very small in the big distribution of things. Um, the, the big defection rates that we saw in 2016 were much more than just those people. OK, um, so, you know, in terms of her being kind of that bridge between candidate, you know, she's she's towards that left side of the bridge, though. Right. I think, yeah. like, you know, for all the grief that you see on Twitter which is not representative at all. Not I see, <laughs> I see people say, you know, Twitter is not exactly representative of, a, no, Twitter is like nowhere near representative of the American electorate. <laughs> it ain't even close. Yeah. So like, you know, Buttigieg is like more like that bridge candidate, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Even though like, a, you know, my Twitter will blow up. Buttigieg's a corporate ass, ah! you know? Like, no, dude, like really, like he's pretty liberal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that. the scenario is interesting because Buttigieg, he overperforms his his national polling in Iowa. He's, Iowa's demographically a really good, good state for him because his coalition his support comes from the kind of more educated white um voters that yeah. are represented in iowa now warren and sanders both have to be off the campaign trail in the final stretch Buttigieg has been up in the polls in iowa there is a there is a scenario which is not an implausible one that most of the many many of the iowa voters are late-breaking voters the movement seems to suggest they might be shifting towards Sanders, but you can imagine easily a scenario where in these last couple weeks, because Sanders can't make his final push, Buttigieg pips him at the post and that just resets the trajectory of the whole race. If Buttigieg um, comes up ahead, I think, you know, you're looking at a whole different ballgame. Well, there's a reason I don't make predictions for uh, presidential <laughs> primaries, dude. Well, this one in particular, I just think <laughs> it's really, it's really hard to call. I, I yeah, honestly yeah. don't know where it's going to go. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this one's going to be a real, this is going to be a barn buster. I'm really excited to be in the caucus room. <laughs> it's yeah. going to be fascinating. Yeah. All right, one last one. I'm going to skip Tom Steyer because we all should. Um, um, we'll do Sanders. He says, now, when Trump talks about socialism, what he talks about is giving hundreds of billions of dollars in tax breaks and subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Donald Trump, as a businessman, received $800 million in tax breaks and subsidies to build luxury housing. By democratic socialism, says healthcare is a human right. So he's kind of calling Trump the wrong kind of socialist. Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, that's what I said when, about effective messaging, right? I mean, and this is another reason I'm not, I'm not so sure that Sanders and Warren are these death knells. I think 
the, the big risk in them is if the party holds back, these never Trump's, you know, third party efforts won't help because it's Sanders, ah, you know, and like, but honestly, like, you know, I've been saying for a long time, the, Demo- the Democrats are their own worst enemy. They'll go out there and be like, you know, I'm not that kind of Democrat. You know, I'm a fiscal conservative. Why in the would you want to tell people you're a fiscal conservative, dude? What has <laughs> fiscal conservatism done for the American economy <laughs> that you, not being a member of the party of fiscal conservatism, would want to tell people that that you are a fiscal conservative, right? Like, how would you instead go make a uh, case for Keynesian economics, right? Or liberal economics, or, you know, go and, and actually indict the record of fiscal conservatism, because it's not hard to do. It's been a, I mean, the reason why we have this populist angst in the U.S. is, is you know, 40 years of austerity um, and, you know, wage stagnation. I mean, the fiscal conservatism is it without its byproducts, right? So, you know, at least with Warren and Sanders, you do get like a positive, aggressive push for the democratic vision. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. I mean, I think, thank you for that conversation because I feel, I feel better. Oh, good. I, <laughs> I feel I, good. I try to do that sometimes. <laughs> <you know. laughs> So I think any which way it turns, I think Democrats um, Democrats have had a fascinating race so far, and we ain't even voted yet. So who knows? <laughs> who knows what's going to happen? Um, but it's been great to talk all this through with you. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll talk to you after Iowa. We'll see how we feel then. So before I let you go, a quick news update and a quick polling update for you this week. Um, in terms of the polls, movement in the polls has been mostly in Bernie Sanders' favor this week. Um, he has been climbing um, and he is currently at 22.7% um, in the polling average. Um, still considerably behind Joe Biden, who's at 28.9, um, but climbing rapidly um, and making good progress. Uh, meanwhile, Elizabeth Warren, the next kind of next highest person, uh, highest candidate in national polls, um, is not climbing. She's sort of holding steady at 14.6. Behind her um, is Pete Buttigieg. Um, and then kind of now sort of nationally tied with uh, Buttigieg is Mike Bloomberg, um, whose um, investment in $146 million worth of uh, ad spending seems to be paying some dividends for him. Speaking of Mike Bloomberg this week, um, he's been in the news with a back and forth between himself and Donald Trump. Trump seems to have been triggered um, to tweet aggressively against the former uh, mayor of New York by Bloomberg's advertisements, um, his TV ads, which have been appearing on a number of locations, including Fox News, which the president is known to watch, and specifically the Fox and Friends TV show, which he is known to watch and rage tweet. So um, he seems to be getting under the president's skin, um, which is interesting. Apparently, um, the president's advisors have been urging him to focus on other candidates who are higher up in the polls. Um, But again, as we know from President Trump's behavior elsewhere, um, he just can't resist responding to whatever he sees on TV. Um, In slightly more substantive back and forth in this election, um, there has been a little bit of a dispute between Bernie Sanders and Joe Joe Biden. 
about Social Security. Sanders alleges that Biden has been making statements um, saying that he would favor cutting Social Security. Um, Biden says absolutely not. Um, he never claimed any such thing and, and doesn't support any cuts to Social Security. Um, it seems fairly, the specific language that Sanders has been using um, against Biden seems not, um, seems, seems not to be a call for cut, uh, call for cuts. Although, you know, there have been times in the, in Joe Biden's past when he has signaled that he open to negotiations on social security um, in terms of um, debt reduction plans or in the context of, of other kind of compromise initiatives. So it's not totally unfair to say that Joe Biden has on some occasion signaled his willingness to um, cut Social Security to some extent, but he certainly doesn't seem to be saying that in this election. Um, so I think you have to call that a kind of split decision in terms of who's right. Um, it's also interesting that they, they although there has been this exchange between them, neither of them has seemed to want to go as aggressively against each other as you might expect from two kind of front runners battling it out for first place in um, with the first election coming up just a couple of weeks away. Um, and it seems that there is a, a sort of conventional wisdom um, emerging amongst the primary uh, that going negative on each other is is not um, an effective strategy, that it, it, it risks blowback. So everybody's trying to include, accuse the other person of going negative first. Sanders called a rebuttal ad that Biden put out defending his position on social security against Sanders, mentioning Sanders by name. Sanders people called that the first negative ad of the cycle, which I think it's it's just kind of interesting. Um, but the big news of this week has been the beginning of the impeachment trial against Donald Trump. Um, the the Senate is hearing the trial um, brought by uh, led by lead uh, House Manager Adam Schiff, um, who has been making material presentations um, and procedural presentations, um, and then um, defended by the defended by the president's lawyer on the other side. Um, the the trial, whatever its outcome may be, is having a significant impact on the primary in that um, a number of the top Democratic candidates, specifically Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Amy Klobuchar, are all being kept away from the Iowa campaign trail in these final couple of weeks um, before anybody votes. Um, and yet they're also forbidden from speaking on the Senate floor in their role as jurors from the, for the trial. So um, they're in this catch-22 of they they must be in the Senate to be seen to be doing their jobs, but they are not allowed to speak on the Senate floor and get the kind of TV attention that you might normally expect to get um, whilst in the middle of a uh, prominent uh, senatorial hearing. Um, so that's the news for this week. And that's it. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at KarenJR. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. I would love to hear from you if you have feedback on the podcast, if you want to shout out the candidate that you're supporting or 
bitch about a candidate you're not supporting, I am happy to hear from you. Um, if you are an American listening to the sound of my voice and you have not yet re- registered to vote or requested your absentee ballot in this calendar year, it is now election year, people, um, please get straight on it um, and go to the appropriate website to do so. If you're an American abroad like me, go to votefromabroad.org. Or if you're an American back home, go to vote.org. Both of those places will be able to sort you out with um, getting you registered and making sure that you receive an absentee ballot. Uh, Don't forget to participate in the primary. You need to be duly registered voters. So get on with that. Um, I should let you know that this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me here and I will talk to you next Friday.